0: The National Archives podcast series, Divorce Records After 1858, presented by Liz Hoare. What we're going to look at today is, is the divorce records at the National Archives. And I'm going to explain what we've got, what we haven't got, and to some degree why we haven't got stuff and then we will look at the different types of records you will find in the J77 class, which is the divorce records. So I'm going to take a brief view of divorce before 1858. It was a three-stage operation. You had to go to the ecclesiastical court to get a separation from bed and board. You then took a civil case for damages. The only grounds for divorce was adultery mostly instigated by men. The first woman plaintiff was in 1801, and probably the only reason she she got it was because her husband was having an affair with her sister. Once you've done that, you then took out a private act of parliament. The first stage was effectively a judicial separation. In order to remarry, you had to do all three stages. The cost was something in the region of 600 to 800 pounds. So for the vast majority of people, it's meant you committed bigamy. You know, you just you just couldn't afford that sort of that sort of those sorts of prices. The records for those are actually in the House of Lords because they're private acts of parliaments. So it's in the Parliamentary Archives, in the House of Lords Journal, and various other bits of paper. They often have copies of what happened in you know, the, the first two, two stages, so you you can get quite a lot of very, very good information, and they're in considerable detail. Uh, you know, you get sort of the couple was seen together in in the drawing room uh, you know on the sofa, and neither, neither of them had their feet on the floor. You know, it, it was very much considered the pornography of, of the time, of, you know, the records there. The way into that, once the Times is around, you know, the Times loved a bit of scandal, so you did actually get this Kinneard divorce was one that I, I checked out. Mr. Kinneard was a footman to the king and he married as a second wife a young woman who appeared to be entertaining the troops at Windsor. Um, so he wanted to get rid of her because he did not want to be responsible for any children she might have. And so he he got a divorce. I've only got the two stages There, because I couldn't find the third one using the thing, but all three stages were reported in the Times, which gives you the dates. uh, It dates into the the various records. There is a published volume which does list all the divorces that the the House of Lords Record Office, Parliamentary Archives holds. So that is there. The Divorce Act of 1857, part of the move from the church courts to the secular courts. It took place at the same time as the probate of wills was 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 taken from the church court. But it did mean there was only one London court instead of many local church courts. It was more affordable, technically, but still fifty pounds for a, a basic divorce. A lot of a lot of money for, you know, a working class person. So it Again, it tended to be slightly better off people that that went in for it. Still balanced in favour of the men. He could sue on the grounds of adultery alone. The woman needed to have two grounds. So adultery plus either violence or desertion or bigamy, incest or rape. It does mean there's considerable evidence of domestic violence in this period in in the divorce papers once you actually get in to look at them, particularly if if the wife is, is the plaintiff. London remained the only court until 1927. In 1927, it was extended to 10 county-sized towns, but they had to be uncontested cases. By the 1930s, a quarter of the cases were in the county courts. In 1937, the grounds for divorce were extended. You could now get it for desertion for five years, cruelty incurable sanity or drunkenness, and imprisonment under a commuted death sentence. The records. The principal registry of the family division has the decrees and the decree index. The indexes are not open to the public. You have to pay for them to do a search. They are organized by the date of the final decree absolute. They do not include failed divorces. But they do include some colonial divorces. So it is quite difficult. For any divorce after 1937, that's all you'll get, the evidence of the decree. That's all there is. The National Archives has the files and the file indexes to divorces from 1858 to 1937, there's just over 120,000 records. Most of them are stripped files. A small number of them are full files. The difference between the stripped and the full files: most of it's procedural. You you don't. They have the full files have writs and various procedural things but they can also have things, particularly in the later stage, like photographs. Quite often they've got correspondence and letters. One file I looked at, the, the husband had letters written to, the, written to his wife by her lover. So, and those had all survived in the doors for They had. They were stripped out of the vast majority of the files we've got. We've got the basic records. From 1858 to 1927, 99, point nine percent of the cases we have. It includes failed cases. So if somebody took out a petition and the petition was dismissed, we still have the records. From 1928 to 1937, we have 80 percent of the cases, all those from the London Court. The remaining 20 percent from the country courts were destroyed. From 1937 to 2002, we have a minute sample of full files. We have a total of 826 cases from that department, an average of 10 to 12 a year. So a very, very small number considering the numbers. Now the reason for that, Lord Denning... In 1963, the Denning reported to legal records. He re- recommended the destruction of many modern legal records, not only divorces, a lot of other records. The principal registry files destroy all files. That has been applied from 1938 onwards. District registries destroy all files. That has been applied from 1927, so nothing survives from the district registry. All you will get is the decree from the principal registry for, for records of that case. You may find newspapers, local newspapers, have stuff about them. The more salacious cases from the London courts are quite likely to be written up in the Times, the national newspapers. But by then, divorce was becoming moderately routine and they really had to be the most more interesting cases that you know that that have survived that, that get reported in the papers but if you know they're from a small town you and they've got a local newspaper you may find something in there this is possibly a reason why the divorce rate shot up you can see from there the first world war nice little spike you know 1927 the country courts kicking in 1937 the, the grounds were increased and you can imagine where it went after the second world war through the you know through the roof the volume of records would have been huge and that's possibly one of the reasons that the decision was made not to keep any of them so how to find what we have since november 2007 you can identify the records in the catalog but from, they're searchable by the full names of the appellant and respondent. The respondent generally only has the surname only till 1883. Then after that, the full name is given. The, the, the small sample of, of files we've got has just got the surnames and initials. It's on the to-do list to actually improve that a bit more. They were input using the contemporary indexes that they had. So one of the key things with it, particularly with a lot of the records, is the correspondents aren't always in the index, despite the fact that they are actually in the divorce. So you can see from here, from before 1884, you've just got the surname. After 1884, you've actually got the full name of the correspondent, as much as the person. could... could a suspiciously high number of correspondents were called Smith. <laughs> I, I, I really haven't done enough work on it to prove that that it was, but I think, I, I suspect an awful lot of these divorces were collusive, a lot more than than they 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 claim to be. As I said, quite often, the correspondent was not mentioned in the index. It's quicker to write two names than three, and the clerks just wrote them in. And there wasn't that much space in the box, so they just didn't write them in. After 1910, the type of case was entered into the, the volume. We've put that into here. Okay, these are all. We've got husband divorce because we assume if there's a correspondent, it is a divorce file. There is a lot more than just divorce in the records though. It pays when you're searching, if, you know, if you're thinking of somebody, to use the AND because although we have got the full names, and particularly with the correspondence, they didn't always know they had a second name. So we have George and Garland limited it to J77, and there it comes up. And The chap I'm interested in is that one up there, George Macaulay Garland. I haven't quite... Unfortunately, the records down the bottom where we have a George M. Garland, I don't know if it's the same man because the actual file has nothing more than that. Obviously, the husband didn't know the full name of of the co-respondent when he he gave it, Um, and he's only in anything as George M. Garland. So I don't know whether he was a serial adulterer or not. He did go on and marry the first woman, um, made an honest woman of her. So the stripped files contain a petition an affidavit in support of the petition, the response of the defendant, they usually have a marriage certificate, and a summary of the course of the case. The stripping process was not always accurate, and I've certainly looked at files where they document a response from from the respondent but there's not one in the files that's been accidentally binned or something. So they, they, were, they were not very careful when they stripped the files. So you may well find there's evidence that, that the, the respondent has replied to the charges, but they don't, they're not, it's not there, and that's not uncommon. The types of cases you get. The first case I've got here is a divorce case. Mary Wilkinson Fleshborn versus John Fleshborn. She was Nay Swain. She had married John Fleshborn, an innkeeper, in June 1850 in Lincolnshire. They lived in Lincolnshire and London until 1855 when he deserted her and bigamously married Anne Westerby. So you've actually got two marriage certificates in this one. the, the, The happy couple then departed on the Caroline Anglis and sailed for New Zealand, where they remained. Now in 1850, 1855, she's pretty much in limbo. She couldn't, there's no way she could have afforded 800-odd 800, 800 quid for a divorce. She was legally his wife. So 1858, changed the law, she's in there, she gets her divorce straight away. He, do, he, do, he never responds to it. Another divorce case I came across was John Castelli. He was a tailor of Marlebone, recently arrived from Italy. And he wasn't very proficient in English. Met up with a fellow Italian, Francesco Zerman, who introduced him to a young woman called Rosa Brock. They married on the 30th of June, 1859, and lived together for a short time before he discovered she was already pregnant. He left her, and shortly afterwards, on the 16th of December, she gave birth to a full-grown child. It transpired that Rosa was Zerman's mistress, and she already had a two-year-old child by him. So he was trying to find a nice, comfortable wife for his mistress. So the, 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 the main bulk of them are divorces. But you also have a nullity. That's declaring the marriage as void, as if it never happened. And there are two main grounds for nullity. One, that the marriage was bigamous, and the other one, non-consummation. Bigamy. This is... A case, Mary Jane, Emily Jeans Clements, she married Robert Hannam Collier in June 1864. Two children later, in 1873, she found that he already had a wife. He claimed that he had a letter that he'd lost from somebody stating that his first wife had died. Emily was 17 and Robert was 43 when they married I found, them on the cen- I found her on the census with the two children later. She claimed to be a widow, still using the surname Collier, but she changed the Y to a lie. This is the outer cover of the, the divorce records, and it gives a summary of what happens. Um, you know, petition filed and the date and the final decree and the date. There's not a decree Nisi nice on this one because um, it's not a divorce, it's a nullity. Non-consummation, famous case, Marie Stokes. Marie was a a scientist. Um, In 1901, she attained a double first in botany, very intelligent woman. She continued her studies and in in 1905 obtained a DSC, became Britain's youngest Doctor of Science. She married a fellow scientist, a chap called Reginald Gates. They married in Canada, marriage certificate in, in amongst the papers there. And basically, the marriage wasn't consummated. She took this degree from, she took this case for nullity. They have to go through the, the, when you take a case for nullity, you have to go undergo a medical examination, both parties to show that, that physically, there's physically no reason for them not to be consummating it a fairly embarrassing and degrading sort of process to go through. Reginald didn't turn up for it, which is why she got her nullity. But if you're not a virgin, then you wouldn't get an nullity. wouldn't have got a nullity. It was a result of her experience of her first marriage and, and having to go through the courts like this that she actually wrote the book that she's very famous for called Married Love about relationships within marriage, not only sexual relationships, but, you know, general relationships within marriage. And the response to that book is what got her involved in looking at issues on family planning and women's health issues in general. She, she comes from a feminist background. Her, her mother was a strong feminist as well. Her mother was somebody who educated at Edinburgh University but was only given a diploma and not a degree because she was a woman. So... She came from that sort of background. It's a, very, it's a very famous case, that one. Another thing that you're likely to find in the records is that of judicial separation. In a number of the cases, it may have been chosen because they had religious objections to divorce, but in the bulk of them, I think it is purely because they don't have evidence of adultery. In 96% of the identifiable judicial separation cases, the plaintiff's a woman. And the petitions usually document a series of, of either verbal or physical violence, but no adultery. So I think they just don't have the evidence to get a full divorce at this period. It's, adultery's easier to prove in a woman. She gets pregnant. She's more likely to be at home. It's easier to track her movements. The husband's got the income. He can afford the private detective if necessary. This case here. Emily Agnes Collier and Thomas Frederick Collier. Thomas Frederick's an artist, and they married in Dublin in 1853. They lived between London and Cork. There were four children to the marriage. They're all named in the petition. Emily documents a long history of excessive alcohol consumption, physical violence, and verbal abuse, and threats to her and the children. If you can, you if you read that article there, that's a case taken in the West, Westminster Magistrates' Court where he's being, you know, charged with a threatening behaviour. It says down the bottom there he's previously been imprisoned for self harm, so he's you know, there's been a lot going on in that marriage. She was granted a judicial separation and in eighteen eighty one in the census she's a lodging housekeeper. She admits to being married, but her husband's definitely not there. The man that did that is also capable of punching his head, heavily pregnant wife in the head, stunning her, and threatening to throw their 12 month old child onto the fire. After 1878, a judicial separation could be granted by the magistrates' court. This was after the Matrimonial Causes Act. Effectively, they would give, in a case where the husband had been convicted of assault against his wife, The magistrate had the authority to grant a financial settlement. It's frequently called a poor man's divorce, but you could not remarry after this. By the beginning of the 20th century, there were about 8,000 a year of these cases, opposed to about 600 divorces. So it's a much higher incidence of, of that Again, it's partially that you can't afford the 50 quid to get get you divorced and also possibly because there's no evidence of adultery. If any records of those do survive, they will be in the county record offices. And of course, whenever a lower court has a right to act, you get an appeal to the high court. So you get this appeal from the divisional court. In 1914, Woking and Petty Sessions granted a judicial separation to Margarita Theresa Sori against her husband John. Um, They'd met in July 1913, married in February 1914. She was pregnant by May, and by the 19th of May she was in the Petty Sessions. A litany of violence. He was a publican, and reading between the lines, I don't think she much liked the life of a publican's wife. And again, I'm afraid, excessive alcohol proved to be a large factor in this case. Charming when sober, but there were complications with the in-laws. Alcohol and domestic violence were part of Margarita's life as a child as well. And John then appealed to the high court saying, you know, this was bad in law. You know, she didn't really prove this. He lost his case. He had to pay 10 shillings a week for her and the child. A quick way of getting a divorce if you haven't got adultery grounds is for the couple to separate and then one or other party apply for a restitution of conjugal rights. Joseph Stead and Mary Ann Stead, he states she's left the family home and refuses to return. She claims she's left because of his cruelty and also asks for judicial separation. He counterclaims she condoned the cruelty if there was any. That's a standard counterclaim. I didn't do it, but if I did, they deserved it. And that's either party. Um, I've seen that where a wife said that about adultery she's committed. I didn't do it, but if I did, he condoned it. So that's a standard legal defence for most of them. Protection orders. Before the Married Woman's Property Act of 1884, a woman's assets became those of her husband once they were married. The sorts of people that end up taking out protection orders are the middling sorts. The wealthy knew how to protect their money. They had marriage settlements, trusts, etc. So it's this sort of person. Joanna Coleman, the wife of Charles Coleman, a a seedsman and farmer from Bodman Cornwall. Charles forged the acceptance of a couple of bills and disappeared in November 1860. Joanna was supported by her family but wanted to go into business as a shopkeeper. But Charles's creditors had a claim on her if she had an income because what's hers was his. So she took out a protection order essentially to protect against his creditors the people he stole from. I've again tracked this family on census, and in 1871 she was living—no, sorry, 1861—she's living with her sister and husband, and she says she's a merchant's wife. In 1871, Charles is back home, and they're playing happy families again. So, I haven't tracked to see whether he was prosecuted for his theft or whether he made enough money to come back and pay it all back. But I know there are at least two people researching this family. I'll bet they don't know this about them. Mary Elizabeth Sharp, the wife of John Sharp, a butler, in the course of Mary Elizabeth's her case was somewhat different. They had separated in eighteen fifty two or three, and it wasn't until eighteen sixty four that she took out a protection order, because she was about to get an inheritance. He didn't find out about it till eighteen sixty six and he appealed. Now the papers of her original protection order we don't have. I don't know, uh, whether they were pulled at the time of this case, I don't know, but I can't find them anywhere in in the records. But his case recaps, it. essentially he's, he's giving a lot of evidence, he's disputing the date of when they actually separated, and he brings all sorts of people in to give evidence, witness statements of, of what's going on. But as well as you know the, the, the divorce thing that's in this one, he, one of the, his witnesses is, is a greengrocer who was brought in to show that they were still living together after the date she claimed they had had separated. And it gives some interesting insight into the lengths that tradesmen will go in order to claim their debts. And it shows that Mary was quite capable of doing a moonlight flit and that when caught up with was capable of physical violence against her creditors. She was fined 10 shillings at Hammersmith Court for assault. John lost his case. He was a, he claimed to be a gentleman farmer when he married her Um, and then he wasn't. He was a servant. He was a butler. I mean, he persuaded her money to sell an interest in some property near Bristol and then took the money, or took some of the money. Mary Elizabeth was ill after he came back from, from Bristol. She was ill for some time, and it took a while before she confessed to his mother that whilst down in Bristol he managed to pick up a venereal disease and transmitted it to her, which made her quite ill for some time. So he was not a particularly savory character. I don't think he was a very good butler either. He kept on changing jobs about every six months. But a bit later on, John tried to bring a case for restitution of conjugal rights, but it was thrown out of court because he hadn't paid for this one. And the lawyers weren't going to take on another case if he hadn't coughed up the money for this one. Judication... This is very rare, but this case is fun, so I put it in. It's falsely claiming to be married when they're not. Constantina Campbell, widow of Anne Alexander Campbell, Royal Artillery. At her funeral, a young man called John Corley got up and says, I'm her husband. And her son went, no <laughs> you And he bought a case of jackdication, And then the woman was completely gobsmacked when John Corley produced a marriage certificate. And he then, the son then tried to claim that the marriage wasn't legal because the mother wasn't capable of making the decision to get married, and he lost it. The bounder got the money. Legitimacy. Most of these people are Most of the ones are, cases I found were usually revolving about inheritance of titles. This chap here is Admiral Sir Thomas Cochrane, 10th Earl of Dundonald, Admiral of the Chilean Navy, very famous. 19th century, up to no good all around, generally. His problem, his son's problem was, his son was Thomas Barnes Cochrane. And after the Admiral died, there then came a thing of who was going to inherit the title. Because the Admiral and his wife had apparently married in Scotland in a private ceremony. Perfectly legal in Scotland, but not you know, there was some doubt as to whether it happened. So some years later, they married again here in London. And the eldest son was born between those two marriages. So this case had to be bought to see if, whether that marriage in, in Scotland was legal. The court decided it was. The complete peerage has its doubts. But Thomas Barnes Cochrane did take become the 11th Earl and there's nothing like a bit of money. This is a full file case. The three children of Albert Barnsley Windle. His father leaves his money to his three children and their legitimate children. Albert's sister claims that his children are not legitimate because his wife was alive at the time of the marriage to his third wife. His first wife was alive at the time of his marriage to his third wife. Albert says, that this mar- this first marriage was not legal as it was bigamous. the wife had a husband before there's all sorts of things in there there's three marriage certificates for the first wife three marriage certificates for him the births of all his children there's all sorts of stuff in in there they, they won the case they decided that the first marriage was bigamous. they never there was no evidence of the of her his first wife's first husband's death so they decided that it was a bigamous marriage, and and so the set the marriage to the third wife was legal. Was possible, well, I suppose the marriage to the second wife was legal on those grounds as well. The second wife had died, but you get you know nice big fat file, lots of lovely information in it. And for those of you who are thinking, not in my family, I've got them all on census. They're all happily together. James Eastwood Pickard versus Elizabeth Pickard. They married in December eighteen thirty seven. They lived in Yorkshire and in Leicestershire, and the intervening year, and they had six sons and four daughters, and then the petition was bought. Oh, it's wonderful. Shortly after the marriage, she exhibited great perversity of temper, insulting me in very abusive use of bad language, and violently assaulted me and struck me. Violently seized by the hair, threatened to murder me, he was obliged to call their elder daughter for assistance, regularly in front of the children, threatening to kill him threatening to murder him. In front of her aunt, abused and insulted me, struck me, threatened to cut my throat. Regularly in front of others, accused him of going with other women. In January, she followed him to his counting house without a bonnet. Now, that appeared to be a major major crime, going out without your bonnet. (laughs) Abusing him through the streets, accusing him of going with prostitutes. In March 1862, violently seized me by the whiskers and afterwards spat on me and wished me dead. December 1863, followed him to the Wesleyan Chapel where he wished to attend the midnight service, A screaming abuse, calling the chapel his whore physically assaulted him, threatening to bake every pane of glass in the building. At point he was taken physically ill, required medical assistance and had not lived with her since. According to the Times report on this, evidence given at the hearing would indicate that his move to Methodism was actually the trigger for all this. She, wasn't, she didn't like it. Personally, I think 12 pregnancies and 10 children um, is enough to make anybody a bit over the edge. <laughs> at the time, particularly laterally, she's also menopausal, the whole, you know, everything all together. Two of the the children actually gave evidence against their mother in the court case, so it caused a huge amount of conflict in this family. The court heard the case, and after deliberation, the judge decided that he was aware there was no precedent for such an order, but he was inclined to make a precedent. And once they were assured he was prepared to financially support his wife, the judicial separation separation order was signed. So you'd think, you know, he's washed her hands of her, never wants to see her again. There we go. 1871 census. There they are, playing happier families. 1881 census. There they are. I think one or other of them had died before 1891. But, you know, there you are. Now, if you'd gone trawling through the censuses, you would think, you know, I've got them They've together, every census. You wouldn't even think of looking in our divorce files for, for that case, unless there was sufficient inherited memory within the family that you knew the marriage had been troubled. and that. But even then, you wouldn't have think to look for something in the divorce file. But it's all there. All human life is in these divorce files. Everything is there. There's, I mean, I've dabbled at the edges of them. And there is just some wonderful, wonderful stuff. The thing is, though, with most of my families, they were still too poor to even afford a 50-pound divorce and they just committed bigamy. I have one family where I've got two bigamists and a man who married his deceased brother's widow. Illegal at the time, but they did it, and they got away with it. It was quite, I mean, the number of cases in court are are there, but I think it's quite rare. So the ones that you get in here are fun, but there's still an awful lot more that you haven't got because they got away with that. But the divorce records are certainly, they, it was a joy to work on them. And it really was, you know, they, they were a huge amount of fun. There are some errors in the catalog, particularly where they've not, they've not put the correspondent in the, in the index files. So if you are looking for any of yours and you find somewhere where it, the full details aren't given, we can add it to the catalog if you let us know. It's 125,000 entries, I'm afraid we're not going to look at all of them. For the earlier ones where we haven't got a full description of the type of case, if you can let us know what the type of case is, we can add it to the catalogue. We're perfectly happy to update stuff into the catalogue, you know, to make it more useful for everybody, academic historians as well as family historians, uh, to know what type of cases we've got. There is... An amazing amount of stuff there. It's a fascinating topic, and Liz, thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 19th of August 2008 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved.